now at the end of this fourth day, and there are many descriptions that one can give of meditation. In one important sense, meditation is an exercise in truth, an exercise in opening to what is true that is just here in front of us in the most direct and obvious ways. I was reading this week in one of my favorite journals, a magazine called The Sun from North Carolina. They published the speech of the New York City Teacher of the Year. He was just awarded that among all the thousands of teachers in New York. He's a junior high school teacher um, who used to teach uh, James Joyce at Cornell University and now teaches junior high in in, uh, Harlem. And a kind of a local legend. And he gave a very chilling and compelling talk. At one point in it, he castigated the school system for the sole murder of one million black and Latino children. And all of the parents and people in school board who attended, the whole audience stood up and gave him a standing ovation for being willing to say that. Because he talks about the society as much as the school. And he says, these children who come um, spend half of their waking hours watching television, and the other half in rooms that are like a prison for them, hearing a bell and being herded from one room to another, away from all the meaningful things of the adult world. He said, and then when they go out and look in the society, think of the things that they see, those which kill us as a nation and are here on the streets around my school. Brainless competition, Enormous drug profit tearing, recreational sex, the pornography and abundance of violence, gambling, alcohol, and the worst pornography of all, lives devoted to buying things, accumulation as a disease. All our addictions of dependent personalities, and that is what our brand of schooling must inevitably reproduce. And then he talks about what the children are like that he deals with. He said, the children I teach are indifferent to the adult world after seeing what we've created. This defies the experience of thousands of years. A close study of what big people were up to was always the most exciting occupation of youth. youth. But nobody wants to grow up these days, and who can blame them? Toys are us, he says. Pretty amazing. said, the children I teach are cruel to each other. They lack compassion for misfortune and have contempt for weakness. They have a poor sense of the future and of history. The children I teach are uneasy with intimacy and candor. They cannot deal with genuine intimacy because of a lifelong habit of preserving a secret self inside an outer personality made up of artificial bits and pieces of behavior borrowed from television or acquired to manipulate teachers and get through our so-called school system. He goes on and on through this. Very compelling reading and painful to read. It's remarkable when we see a person, him or uh, an Andre Sakharov or a Nelson Mandela or a lot of other figures we could name who tells the truth in their words in these times. What are we to do in times when we're told everything's okay and at the same time, even now with the decline of the uh, Soviet um, military uh, presence, we are still building new uh, nuclear weapons. Mutual assured destruction, our policy. When there's so much injustice in the world, and then we're told everything is fine, it's all okay. 
Sansanim, a Korean Zen master, visited the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya and wrote a poem. He said, Once a great man sat beneath this tree and saw the morning star and was awakened. He absolutely believed his eyes, his ears, his nose, his tongue, his mind. The earth is brown, the sky is blue, and what was there was seen for what it was. And so he was enlightened. Now if you look at the Buddha's life, you see that he had a succession of major changes um, where everyone around him told him not to do it. He left home. They tried every way to seduce him to stay through beautiful palaces and the greatest pleasures. And, and uh, he saw a sick person and an old person and asked his charioteer, who does that happen to? And a, and a dead body. And the charioteer said, everybody. And he said, everybody? The charioteer said, everybody. Except those that don't grow old because they die sooner. Um, and he saw that. And even though everyone said, stay here, this is the best you can do, he left. Then he went in the forest and he found some great teachers, yogis, and he practiced with them and mastered their practice. And they said, fine, you've mastered it, teach with us. We'll do it as a, a duet. We'll teach together. And he said, is that all you know? I must go off and seek further myself. They said, this is all there is to know. Then he went and he did his ascetic practices for all those years. And finally, he decided to leave, and the ascetic said, don't leave, you're just chickening out. You're still alive, it can't be that bad. But he said, no, there must be some other way. Even after he was enlightened, he went home, and his parents were very upset with him. They saw him come through the streets of their princely town in his robes, and they called him in and they said, you make us ashamed wearing those things in this neighborhood, you know. Come in and put on some decent clothes. So there was a succession of people that he was with who kept saying, no, it's one way. And he listened to a deeper inner vision over and over again to what was true in himself. That's not far away. But it's here in us always when we are still and able to listen. In teaching with Brother David Stendelrast at some time in the past, he's a wonderful Benedictine monk and teacher, he asked in this group, he said, by what authority was it that Jesus taught? And people started to answer and say, well, by the authority of his father, by the authority of God or whatever. Brother David said, that's not what it comes across when you actually read the Gospels. The, the most frequent and significant authority for the words of Jesus in the Gospels is when he uses the phrase, who among us has not planted a seed and seen what it takes to nourish it so that it will grow? Who among us has not herded sheep and understood what it means to gather or care for them? Who among us has not seen the change of seasons? Who among us who sin first, you throw the first stone? And the authority that he appeals to is the Dharma or the natural law, the truth that is there to be seen by anyone. This direct seeing is what meditation asks us, invites us to do, to awaken, this kind of honest and direct perception. And it's a perception not just with our eyes, but with our whole being and our heart. In many of the sutras or discourses of the Buddha, dialogues, and a lot of them where people got enlightened as he did this little dialogue, so you might listen carefully. It will save you a lot of trouble if you <laughs> listen properly. He would sit with people and he would say, let us speak about our experience of life, of this direct life. Tell me, are the sights and the eye which sees them permanent and unchanging? No, Lord, they would say. How about sounds in the ear which hears them? 
or smells in the nose, tastes in the tongue, feelings and thoughts of the body and mind. Are they permanent and unchanging? No. Well, can you possess them? Control them? No. Will an experience of a particular sight or sound or taste or smell, no matter how pleasant, bring lasting happiness to you? No. Is it you? Is that sight or sound or smell or thought or feeling, is that who you are? Oh dear, no. Over and over again, he would teach people to come back to look directly at this life as we experience it, to look at the truth of it. He pointed to what is called in Buddhism the three characteristics, the three basic qualities of all dual, all, all the experience of life. And the more deeply that we listen and feel and attend, the more that we too see this is the nature of life. The first of these qualities or universal characteristics is impermanence. Here you've sat for four days now. At first the body feels quite solid and maybe tense and tight, but as you pay attention to it and really listen, that which seems solid begins to break up and it becomes gushers of energy and movement and pain and throbbing and tingling and tightness and pressure and pleasant sensation. The more deeply we feel into the body, the more it becomes a pulsing bag of watery whatever it is, which is what it is actually. The body changes. Or we look at feelings. Moods come. One moment you're feeling really happy that you're sitting this retreat. The next moment it feels like you're in prison for a thousand years. And then another moment comes by and you want to come and get other people to join you in prison, right? Because it's so good. One mood follows another. You can't stop them. Thoughts come and go. Views. It seems this way and then it seems that way. There's hope and then there's fear. Outside sounds come. And the more we let ourselves rest in the present, the more the experience of life becomes like a river or a stream. Who among us has not seen that, one would ask. Our whole life is that. You were a child. Body was a different form, completely different. Adolescent, very different. Young adult, middle age, whatever age you are, it's changing. Every cell is changing. And all we have to do is sit and feel and sense it. Now, that's the first characteristic. No matter what you think about it, pay attention. The second is unsatisfactoriness in the events and experiences or suffering. How much suffering is there being born as a human being on this particular planet, on this plane. When you think about it, the people who are born here in many countries and circumstances, there's obvious and terrifying physical privation and uh, hardship, sickness and hunger, great difficulty for millions, hundreds of millions of people like us. But even those who live in the still the richest country on earth, where there's a certain measure of physical comfort, how many of us have had a life where there isn't also great suffering? And our society, in some ways, a good part of our society could be called pain management, <laughs> trying to make sure that we don't, you know, really have to face the suffering of aging and get the right kind of makeup and skin cream and all the rest of it. So we try to run in this culture, but it doesn't work very well. Suffering is an equal opportunity employer. Right? 
keeps everybody busy. There are two great disappointments in life, says Oscar Wilde, not getting what you want and getting it. So there's joy and sorrow, both changing. There's pleasure and pain. Anybody not have that? Gain and loss, praise and blame, where it's only one way, pleasant or beautiful. So we see as we sit that if you want to live in truth, you must also face the suffering, moment to moment, in different flavors. Also, it's selfless. What does that mean? This is something you can't really understand by thinking about it, but it comes in its own intuitive way as you practice. Selflessness means that it breathes itself. You might control the breath some, but mostly, if you let it, it breathes itself. The feelings feel themselves. You don't say, this morning I think I'll have sadness followed by a little discouragement, then followed by a pep talk, then followed by um, you know, a little compassion for someone who I see crying. You don't decide that. You sit here, and it comes through no different than the weather, as James said. The feelings feel themselves. How about the thoughts? Do you choose those thoughts? Come on now. Admit it. They think themselves and they are out of control. I mean, it's like TV, you know, the satellite dish is catching its broadcasting and somebody's flipping through the channels, right? And there's one after another. So one aspect of selflessness is that we don't own it or control it in any way. If you owned your body, you could say, don't get old. Let's just stay this old or get younger. But does that work? It's selfless also because you can't point to one particular thing and say, that's me. That thought is me, but then it's gone. That feeling, that's who I am. That view or that perception. The more you look, the more what you are is this changing process. None of it is stable. It's selfless also because it comes from the void. It's a wonderful thing to sense. That as you sit, where did all those thoughts come from? Does anybody have any idea? <laughs> Outer space. You sit, and they just come. And then they disappear, and they're gone. Where do the feelings come from? Does anybody have any idea? They arise, they're there for a while, and they disappear. Where do sensations come from? They arise due to certain circumstances, they disappear. Sounds comes. Oh, that's the car or a person coughing. But in a way, it just arises through due to certain circumstances. And then where does the sound go? Back into the void, into nothing. Where did your retreat? You've done four days now. Where have they gone? Back into the void, right? With your childhood. Disappeared. With the 60s, 70s, and 80s. All gone. Right? It comes, it does this amazing dance in the present moment, and then it goes off stage, back to nothing. This is the truth, and it's really obvious. Yesterday, with very important day in your life, gone. It's also selfless because it's inherently unsubstantial, insubstantial, like a bubble, a mirage, an echo, a rainbow. The more you bring your attention to something, the less really solid you can find it to be. The closer you experience, the more it's something that changes from one moment to another. You can't, what is that feeling exactly, or that thought, or that sensation, or that sight, or that experience, that sound, you want to capture that sound, and you can't capture anything. So the Buddha said, pay attention and see the direct truth of this life into which we are born. Now, as we sit and quiet ourselves, first the body begins to settle, and there's a kind of release of the holding and tension and busyness that we've had, which is really important, especially in our time and culture. And as the body settles and releases and opens, we're asked to note and to sense, to be mindful, present with our being, 
not just with our mind. I think the word could equally well be heartful, or or because heart and mind are the same word in Sanskrit. To bring yourself, your presence, to this moment. And to name what's here, to use even the thinking to help acknowledge what this moment is truthfully. So when you name it, you note it. Say, oh, there's sadness or happiness or there's tingling or fire or pain. There's thinking. So the first thing that we're asked to do after we quiet and open a bit is simply to acknowledge one moment after another the experiences that arise out of nothing for us, to name them, to note them. And to do that with a spirit of kindness rather than trying to change them. Then the second thing that we're asked to do, and both of these together really ask of us a profound kind of intimacy, just like those kids that he talked about in the school systems in New York. Many of us don't know how to be so intimate with our life. We're too busy to be really present or intimate. So it asks for a a profound and caring attention. What is this? To note what's present, that's the first task. And then the second task is to see or sense what happens to it. These are both important. So sadness comes and you note, ah, here's the feeling of sadness. And then you name it for a while, and you stay with it and see what it does. Sad, sad, sad. Maybe you name it five or ten times, and then it disappears. And then itching comes, and you note, oh, now there's itching. Itching, itching. You don't just name it and then hurry back to your breath. That's sometimes what people might do in the beginning. But what we'd like to ask is that you name it, and then see what it does. Okay, itching, itching. Then it spreads, and your whole face is tingling. You think, oh, tingling, tingling. And you think, I'm going to die if I don't scratch this. Dying, dying. You kind of name that. And then if you stay with it, dying passes. Tingling passes and itching passes. If you let yourself stay with things, naming them as long as they're there and seeing what happens, they show their true nature, which is to arise and change and pass. They move at different speeds. Thoughts blip through. You name thinking and often just dissolves. Feelings kind of la-la-la through. They'll last for five labels, ten labels, twenty labels if they're really entrenched in some way, right? Or adamant. Body sensations may last longer. You can sit and there'll be tightness or pain or tingling. They will be there for quite a long time, for some minutes or a good part of a sitting, But even in those, if you pay attention and name them and feel into them deeply, they'll, instead of being one solid thing, they'll show themselves to be made up of lots of tingles and pinpricks and fire and needle and and bubbles and all the cellular sensations that make up our life. So we're asked to pay attention in a very direct and truthful way to the obvious in our experience to see it arise moment after moment, name it, and then name it as it's present as long as it's there. As we do this, as we sense and pay attention mindfully and really listen, it begins to change our perception of how things are. What seems solid starts to show that it's not what seemed a place of rest or pleasure starts to show that you can't rest there or take lasting pleasure. Most importantly, it leads to a shift in our sense of identity. Remember the story of Mullah Nasruddin where he goes to cash his check in the bank? Did I, I might have even told this a couple of days ago. They say, could you please identify yourself? And he pulls out the mirror, yep, that's me, all right. (laughs) The story that we tell ourselves and the grasping of that story and of this body creates a kind of limited identity. And then as you meditate for some days, three or four days, some of you will have moments where the story gets a little quieter 
the thoughts start to quiet down and go away. The body gets more silent. Or the sensations start to move by themselves. You're sitting and all of a sudden there's this energy movement or this tingle and you didn't have anything to do with it. And then there comes a little anxiety. Wait, I thought I controlled this body, but it's doing it itself. Or it gets very quiet when the thoughts go away, it gets really still. And there comes this little bit of fear. What should I do next? This is scary. Maybe I'm going to get enlightened or something like that, whatever that is, right? Um, And in that unaccustomed stillness, our fear comes. Do you know why the fear comes? Because most of our sense of ourself is made out of thought. We keep telling ourselves a story, and as long as we tell it fast enough and long enough, and, and generally in a, in a complex and interesting enough way, we have a sense that we're all right. Even if it's a tragedy, we're retelling King Lear over and over again, <laughs> at least we know who we are. I'm Lear. You know? But what happens when all that story, I'm going to do this and become that, and after this retreat, and before this, and my parents, and my friends, and when that story quiets down and disappears, so that there isn't so much thinking. When the thoughts go away, who else goes away? Moi, right? As Miss Piggy says. <laughs> the most central character in the movie. And that gets a little um, uncomfortable for what they call in Eastern psychology for the ego or the sense of self. Wait a second, what about me? And so we start to think again about all the things that we'll do telling someone what an interesting selfless experience we just had or something. (laughs) So as we pay attention, things want to open. They start to, to show shunyata, emptiness, the true nature of things. Our identity begins to shift. For ages we have had a limited identity based on various conditions, based on pain, based on fear, based on delusion, certainly based on a lot of our modern child-rearing practices and the kind of what's happened to human beings being born in an industrial society. We end up, for all these reasons and conditions, with a sense of a small or limited or fixed or deficient sense of self. And out of that we're frightened. And so when we sit, that begins to show itself. I I call it sometimes encountering the Freudian layer. We encounter this layer of of a sense of past trauma or injustice or or unfinished business and pain um, and a whole identity of how we protect ourselves that's been there for a long time, from childhood, if not long before. This is a limited sense of ourself. And it's a story that we have gotten used to of who we are. Jules Pfeiffer wrote, I grew up to have my father's eyes, my father's walk, my father's mannerisms, my father's intelligence and intellect, and my mother's contempt for my father. (laughs) So we have these stories. You laugh, but there's something a little close to home in that. We have these stories that we've learned, whether childhood or lifetime, about who we are, and often that's based on previous experiences of delusion and fear and pain and a conditioning of negative or limited sense of ourselves. And in order to protect ourselves and defend ourselves against pain and loss and abandonment, then against impermanence, against suffering, to protect ourselves, we have developed a set of habits based out of this limited identity. One of the habits is of grasping, if there's something pleasant, to try and hold on to it, greed. Another habit is to run away, if there are things that are uh, difficult, to try and avoid them through fear or hatred. A third habit is to pretend that things that are there aren't, that are difficult, through delusion and clouding and fogging 
our minds are compartmentalizing. This is the strategies of greed, hatred, and delusion, holding on to pleasant as if it could stay, even though it doesn't, or avoiding pain, trying to run away as if we could really do that in our life, or closing our eyes to change or loss or difficulties as if that would make it different. Very strong habits based on this limited identity that we have to protect. Sometimes from this limited identity, we try to be spiritual as well. Well, I'll make a spiritual identity. But that's really just an imitation. You know when you do that. You can feel that even though you do it, you're meditating or or kind of doing it, it feels like a shell. It's another kind of defense. And out of these habits of grasping and and uh, trying to hold on one way, greed, and pushing away, hatred and fear on the other, and so forth, whole patterns of personality or character develop. And so in Buddhist psychology you get greed types who are always looking for things, or aversion types who always see what's wrong with things, or always judging them, or deluded types who don't know where they're going and what they're supposed to be doing most of the time, which is just the accumulation of these habits or strategies based on this limited sense of ourself, of who we are. Somebody asked Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan Lama, if there's no self, what exactly is it that's reborn in Buddhism? And he kind of smiled. He said, I hate to tell you this, but he said, what's reborn is your bad habits. So here in the meditation, we're asked to pay attention and note these things, to observe. There's, gra- there's a moment of pleasure and then grasping. There's a moment of pain and then aversion or resistance. There's a moment of not much going on, delusion or sleepiness. We're asked to see these states of grasping and resisting just as we see the impermanence and the change of things, to pay attention to them and to see them deeply is also to ask in a silent way, is this who I am, this greed or this fear or this delusion or this hatred? Read you a story from the Tales of a Magic Monastery. I'm a monk myself, and I asked in my monastery, what is a monk? But no one could answer me, so I went to the Magic Monastery. The master there, who I met, I asked again that same question, and he said, do you mean in the daytime or at night? (laughs) Now, what could he be talking about? When he didn't answer, when I didn't answer, he picked it up again. He said, a monk or nun, like everyone else, is a creature of expansion and contraction. During the day, they're contracted behind the cloister walls, dressed in a habit like all the others, doing the routine things you expect a monk or a nun to do. But at night they expand. The walls cannot contain them. They move throughout the world and touch the stars. Oh, I thought, what nice poetry. But to bring him back to earth, I began, well, during the day in their real body. And he said, wait, that's the difference between you and us. You people regularly assume that the contracted state is the real body. It is real in a sense. But here we tend to start from the other end, from the expanded state. The daytime state we sometimes refer to as the body of fear. And whereas you tend to judge a monk or a nun by their decorum during the day, we tend to measure them by the number of persons they touch at night and the number of stars. Isn't that a lovely story? So there are different possibilities. There's another very real possibility of opening this sense of identity, of expanding, of not trying to possess the experiences of our life, but opening to swim in or touch or connect with all things as they arise and pass out of emptiness. It's said in some spiritual teachings that there are only two states for us. One is a state called sleep, 
or magic spell, or illusion, or clouds, or dreaming, or the body of fear. It's that limited sense that we're this body and we're to be careful and hold on to things and be frightened. You know that state. I'm sure you do, don't you? Right? Afraid of things and fears. And the other state is that of being awake, which is what the Buddha's name means. Buddha means awakened one. Awakened to this dance, awakened from that dream of limitedness, of possession, of fear. With eyes and heart open, out of the spell, not caught in the spell of things. The Buddha discovered that by not possessing or grasping or resisting, that we could have happiness, joy, ease, contentment, and freedom. That that's possible for every single human being. And when he talked about enlightenment, he often would say, there are two conditions. There are the five grasp processes of physical body and its senses, feelings and memories and thoughts and the consciousness that make us up, these five grasp processes. That's the deluded state. And then he'd say, what is the enlightened state? And he would say, body, feelings, memories, um, thoughts, and consciousness, the same processes. The only difference is he left off the word possessed or grasped. That's the only difference. Whether we take this and grasp it or not. He said, not by virtue or insight or calm or its absence do you become free. And all of the teachings is to bring one to a freedom that he called the the sure heart's release, to experience a direct and different sense of ourself. This is our Buddha nature, or our true nature, our non-possessive nature. And as we sit, different layers open, physical layers, emotional ones, old identities, you can begin to sense the habits held in the body, the structures of grasping or fear or resistance or sleep that create this limited sense of ourself. No judgment, no blame. It actually served you very well at times. But with mindfulness, you can also sense in between it, in between the cracks and in the space around it. And over time, even as it arises, a whole other sense of becoming open like space itself, being present and letting the breath breathe itself, the feelings feel themselves, the sunshine, the rain come, if it does, if we're lucky enough, the trucks come and make noise during meditation, and then they disappear and the bird come out instead. And really finding a spaciousness that resists none of it, but touches it all and includes it all. And when we do, there arises, moment to moment, with our attention to it, the opposite of greed, hatred, and delusion. I shouldn't even say the opposite. That which underlies them, which is our true nature, our true state. In place of greed and grasping, we can sense in moments of awakening a tremendous natural abundance and generosity. When I first met His Holiness Karmapa, one of the great Tibetan teachers like the Dalai Lama, head of a whole school of Tibetan Buddhism, he was in this country giving a series of teachings in different places. They built for him, wherever he went, this enormous throne with uh, peacock feathers and, you know, gilded and kind of at least fake-looking jewels and, and silk banners and so forth. It was really like a throne for a king. And I thought, this is kind of unseemly for a Buddhist monk. I mean, he's just supposed to be a renunciate like the Buddha was. He was sitting on this big throne. But after spending time with him and getting a sense of the way he taught and what he represented, he was the archetype of the king, of the Dharma king, 
And the Dharma king doesn't serve himself. If the king serves just himself, you get in a lot of trouble, or the queen. But a true king or queen serves that which is greater than themselves. So he was the servant of the Dharma. And he sat there, and there was this sense of splendor and graciousness and blessing and connectedness and wholeness that was just his presence. People, Thousands of people would come and see him do a ceremony or change his hats, put on this black crown. I mean, um, and it was simply to be in his presence. He didn't even say anything. And he would sit there and manifest what it meant to be whole and connected. That is our nature as well. When we pay attention and can open, we can sense a kind of abundance that even though the world is full of sorrow, it's also full of beauty and joy and mystery. And we have this capacity to open to it all and to be blessed by it and to bless it all. This tremendous sense of abundance. We also sense when hatred and fear is absent, underlying in our nature a universal love and compassion. Not because you're supposed to be compassionate or you're supposed to be loving, but as that small sense of identity is seen for what it is, which is an old and frightened child, habit, whatever you want to call it, it becomes possible to sense or touch a different reality which has a tremendous openness and love and an intimacy, almost a cellular intimacy, a connection with all things. And in that intimacy, joy and sorrow are so close together, you can't even separate them. I read you from Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche. He says, when you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that it is empty. You look and find that you look in to outer space. What are you? Who are you? Where is your heart? If you really pay attention, you won't find anything tangible or solid. Of course, you might find something very solid if you have a grudge against someone or you've fallen possessively in love, but that's not the awakened heart. If you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your rib cage and feel for it, there is nothing there except for tenderness. You feel sore and soft, and if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This kind of sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You're not sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. There's no skin or tissue covering it. It is pure, raw meat. Even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. Your experience is raw and tender and so personal and yet so connected to everything. It was wonderful just to look in the eyes of Karmapa when he did his ceremonies because there was this tremendous sense of sadness and tremendous beauty, both together. Dharma king, or queen. The last, there's no, the absence of greed leaves abundance, the absence of hatred and fear allows for our connectedness and compassion. The last is the absence of that delusion of closing our eyes, ignoring, going to sleep. And what comes out of that is spaciousness and an unshakable quality of being. That no matter what arises, we can see that. We can say, yes, this is so. This too is true. Yes, this too has come into being for a moment in this form. We can say that to everything. This quality of awakening, of non-delusion, of space for all things, is really mysterious. It is the, the, the fact that we can see 
or here, or be conscious at all in this universe, that the universe has consciousness, is incredible. It is. Why should that be? But it is. But we know. Knowing consciousness. And it's always there for us, even though we're caught at times in our fears and our sleep and our wanting to ignore. Underneath, there's something that knows that's always there. I'm going to read you a kind of interesting account near the end of this talk here about non-delusion. A friend of mine and a therapist named Arnold Mendel, he's a Jungian who also does body and breath work. In his work with people, he does a lot of linking of breathing where he'll sit and he'll breathe along with them. And to breathe with another person just as to feel your own breath deeply connects you with the mystery of your life, opens things up in, a, in special ways. Anyway, he's written a book recently entitled Coma, in which he talks about working with people who are in a coma, who you'd say, well, they're really deluded, they're just gone. And he's gone into hospitals, the book has some examples of it, and he's not the only one, Stephen Levine does this work as well. In this particular case, he went into the hospital and there was an old black man who was there who'd been in a coma for six months, lying there. And he was asked by some friends or relatives to work with this man. So he came in and he sat down on the bed next to him. And this man named John was rasping and making a lot of noise with each breath kind of very difficult breathing and not conscious for six months. So he said, I went up to him and I looked at him a bit and I touched him and then I sat down with him and I started to meditate and breathe with him. I held his hand and each time he'd breathe out, ah, I would squeeze his hand and I'd breathe out with him. I did that for five or ten minutes. Then I started to make sounds with him. He'd go, ah, and I'd go, ah, together with him and breathe out at the same time, and just link my being with his. And after about ten more minutes, he sat up and he opened his eyes. He said, boy, this has been amazing. (laughs) So he wasn't gone, he was there. And then he said, did you see it too? And I said, I did see it, what did you see? And he said, a big white ship's coming for John. And I asked him, are you going to take it? Not me, he yelled. I'm not getting on that ship. Why not, I asked. That ship's going on vacation. It's a cruise ship. i got to get up in the morning and go to work. John had worked hard all his life and was now in his 80s. He had, his cancer had reduced him to a bag of bones. He was stuck at the end of life because he couldn't allow himself to go on vacation. So, so you can hear the identities that we hold. So I said to him, well, getting up in the morning, going to work sounds good to me, but before you do it, let's check this ship out. Look inside, see who's driving it. So he goes down, he comes back, his eyes are wide. Wow, there's angels driving that ship. Do you want to find out where it's going, I asked. So he went inside again and turned his eyes to the right, listening to something. He said, that ship's going to Bermuda. (laughs) What's it cost? After a minute, he said, it doesn't cost anything. I said, think about it. Ever have a vacation? Nope, never had one. Been working and working working. Well, think about it. Make your choice. Finally, he said, I think I'm on a tri-vacation. It doesn't cost nothing. It's going to Bermuda. I said, well, chances are, if you don't like it, maybe it'll turn around and come back. Yeah, I could always get off the ship, he said. You do you what, what you want, Arnold said. I'll trust your judgment. I'm busy now. I have to go see someone else. So he closed his eyes and that was it. And when we came back 30 minutes later, he had died. He went to Bermuda. (laughs) Isn't that an amazing story? Really remarkable. And this book has a number of those. It's just to give you a sense that it's really, it is mysterious. And that within us, it seemed like he wasn't there at all. Within us, even though we've been deluded and asleep and lost, there is something else that knows, that is true, that can 
not only see the truth, but that can swim in it, that opens to it, that can live in that space. It's not just the Buddha or monks and nuns in monasteries. Every human being has this nature. And it's really important for us in the West, both because our culture and the earth so badly needs it, and also because Buddhism's dying out in Asia, and what's left of it is in this room, in part. It's not easy. It means at times, like a birth process, facing the old worn-out skin, the pain, the attachment, the holes, the sense of deficiency, of not being good enough, that we've held as who we are for so long. That's not so easy. To, to make your heart and your mind open enough to see that and say, that too, but not to grasp it or fear it. It's a hard process. But we can do it. Everybody can do it. That's what we're here to do. I'm going to read you, this is going too far, but I'm going to read you one poem to close anyway, because I like it a lot. And it's kind of fun. There's a, a book by a good friend, uh, Stephen Mitchell, who's translated a new edition of the Tao Te Ching and Rilke and Job, and wonderful translator of many things. And this is his own poetry that talks about this process that we're involved in here. Um, and they're kind of little, slightly Zen vignettes. This one is entitled Through the Eye of the Needle. It's really about meditation, maybe. The camel catches his breath wipes the sweat from his brow. It was a tight squeeze, but he made it. <laughs> Lying back on the unbelievably lush grass, he remembers all those years, how excruciating they were, of fasting and one-pointed concentration <laughs> until he was finally thin enough, thread-thin, thermatologically thin, almost unrecognizable in his camelness until the moment in front of the unblinking eye when he put his front hooves together, took one long last breath, aimed and dived. The exception may prove the rule, but what proves the exception? It is not that such things are possible, the camel thinks, smiling, but that such things are possible for me.